Waiting makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, at Simeon's graduation, the valedictorian got up to speak to probably about 2,000 people. And she pulled out her phone to read her speech off of her phone. And it must have been on the cloud because her phone couldn't access the speech. And so she just kind of stood there like this. And everyone thought, oh, you know, she's maybe a little scared to speak to this many people. She's just looking like this. And she's like, it's loading. <laughs> it's loading. I said to Nat, she's going to have to wing it. But she didn't. She actually went and got the Wi-Fi down to McCormick Place, and she ended up being OK. But the waiting was uncomfortable. Waiting is part of life, whether you're stuck in traffic, slow Wi-Fi, maybe waiting for the greeting time at Edgewater to finish if you're an introvert. It's often somewhat anonymous, like slow Wi-Fi or traffic, unless you're following someone and they're going too slow. But it's often more personal. Someone isn't doing their job. A few weeks ago, I was at Mariano's just trying to buy some helium-filled balloons that didn't have helium in them yet. I'm in the party section, and the party person never showed up to fill up the balloons with helium. Somebody's not doing their job. Somebody's falling asleep at the wheel. I had to wait. Or you might say, yeah, I, I wait sometimes and a text message or Facebook message, and they leave me on red. You can see red, and there's no reply. Maybe a friend promises to do something or to be somewhere for you or with you, and they just haven't come through yet. Their promise is just kind of like hanging out there. As the reason for waiting becomes more personal, the relational discomfort can devolve into relational distrust. Where is she? Why hasn't he done what he said he would do? In our culture where many say they are deconstructing their faith, the waiting for Christ to return can become a point of distrust. He said he would come back. Hasn't come back yet. At least not the way that he's described. Doesn't he see the world and all the junk out there? Wouldn't it be helpful if he came back? I mean, if, if he's all that, shouldn't he come back to all this and help us out a little bit? This morning we're in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Peter is writing to his beloved Christians in local churches who are waiting on the arrival of Jesus as he had promised. But he hasn't come yet, which has made them uncomfortable to say the least. See, as Joey preached last week, there were scoffers Perhaps people within the church or people previously associated with the church 
that we're saying, where is the promise of his coming? It's been uh, 60, 65 years. Actually shrink that a little bit because he said that towards the end of his life. So maybe 30, 35, 40 years since he made those promises. Where is he? Those angels, when he ascended, supposedly said he's going to come back in the same way that he has left. Where is he? So Peter's beloved, they, they've been trying to, and Peter has helped them to answer those scoffers. But the reality is they need answers for their own hearts too. Where is the promise of his coming? Why hasn't he come back for us yet? We're in the middle of stuff. It sure would be good if he could help us out. They're asking, can we trust Jesus to keep his promise to return? Especially when the details of that return seem so literally close to unbelievable. Like Peter's beloved this morning, you and I are still waiting on Jesus to return. It's been 2,000 or so years. But if we're honest, we have more of a picture in our minds of Santa returning than Jesus. We might feel the probability of Jesus returning to judge the earth is about as likely as an omniscient elf delivering presents to every good kid in the world on Christmas Eve. I've never seen it happen except in the movies. And I don't really see how it could happen. Peter understands this. Peter, you could even say, feels this. And he encourages his beloved and us to keep waiting for Jesus' return. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray even now, Maranatha, come. We do ask how long it will be we also ask that you would make us patient. You would give us your eyes to see. Give us maturity. Give us the grace to wait. You are abounding in grace to us. You give us all that we need for life and godliness. So even in this, we wait for you and we ask that your word through your spirit would teach us today. In your name, amen. So the question for this morning is this. Why should we trust the Lord and his timing? And Peter would say three things as he makes his argument for why we should trust the Lord and his timing. Number one is this. The Lord does not keep time like us. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact. Okay, pause. He just said, do not overlook. That means as he's talking to Christians, he's acknowledging the possibility that they might overlook this one fact. So as he's been doing throughout the whole letter, reminding them of things, he's saying, I want to remind you, you might be overlooking this one fact. So let me bring you back and remind you not to overlook it. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, 
and a thousand years as one day. Would you just take a second and think on that? One of his days is as a thousand of our years. Yet a thousand of his years are as one of our days. Can you explain that? Should I be like Paul earlier and, and wait for us to like raise our hands and try to figure that out? <laughs> If you expect me to be able to explain that, you're going to be waiting for a while. Pun intended. Peter's point is that God is eternal. Without beginning and without end. He works in time. He knows that we're meeting here this morning at this time. He works in time, but he is not bound by time. Time, in fact, belongs to him. It's a facet of his creation. Going back to the fact that he created in days. He created in sections of time. See, when you're the creator of time, you are necessarily outside of the system. To bring this into the kitchen, you can't make brownies if you're a brownie. We're talking common sense here, people. <laughs> you can't make time if you're bound by time. So God is outside of the system. He's eternal. Well, if you're outside of that system, you're never slow or late. Peter wants them to think about God for a minute. And people of 2023, we need to think about God for a minute when we think about the pace of our lives. There's a sense in us that we are always chasing eternity. Because as the author of Ecclesiastes said, eternity has been put in our hearts. We are eternal beings from here on out whether we know christ or not the soul is eternal so here's the thing we're we're made for eternity but we're bound by time living in the flesh somehow trying to find eternal stuff to hold on to stuff that will last but everything that we try to, almost everything that we try to grasp goes through our fingers like sand. The sands of time. So Peter is saying here, listen, I know that he hasn't, the reason, that he hasn't come back and that has you a little concerned. But God's Timing is not like ours. He's eternal. He's never slow or late. But, and I'm thankful for what Paul said earlier, 
because he is making another interesting argument here by quoting Psalm 90 in this verse. If you remember from last week, and you can go back up the page a little bit, he talks about these scoffers. Verse 4. These scoffers are saying this. Where is the promise of his coming? Okay? But then look how they then continue on with their questioning, their reasoning. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, pause, a regular Gentile agnostic would not use such words. The fathers? These people that were most likely challenging Peter and his beloved were probably people that had Jewish background or at least had background in the church. So even if they were Gentiles, they had begun to be schooled in the Old Testament. So they're looking backwards. Now that they've stepped outside of the system, they've left the church, and now they're now critiquing the church and, more precisely, critiquing Christ. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. Joey brought it up last week. There's a fact that they deliberately overlook, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. These Scoffers would only have this set of beliefs, would only assume that this was a fact if they were either Jews or they were Gentiles who had been brought up in doctrine within the church. So he's, he's speaking to people that he knows and people that have a certain biblical, scriptural foundation. So how does he rebut their argument? He takes them back to the word that they seem to so blithely refer to. He takes them back to Psalm 90. He says, oh, you want to talk about the fathers? How about Moses? How about Moses? Because Moses said, for a thousand years in your sight, O Lord, are but as yesterday when it's past. Later on, as Paul read in verse 13 of Psalm 90, Moses himself says, return, O Lord, how long? How long? So we're backtracking all the way back to Moses leading, shepherding Israel through the wilderness. And he's saying, Lord, when are you going to come back for us? He's anticipating what we are also anticipating. In a sense, we're walking in Moses' shoes and he knows our discomfort as we continue to wait for God to return. Peter's saying, scoffers, if you really knew the fathers, then you would know that Moses saw God as eternal and also wondered how long it would take for the Lord's return. So basically, shut your scoffing mouths. See, the scoffer's core issue is that they scoff at the Lord and at his word, at the promiser, capital P, and his promise to return. 
Instead, Peter is saying to them, would you consider a godly view of time? A mature view, as Moses did, to consider the days of your life. To number your days and walk in wisdom. Not just Xing them off the calendar. Not just saying, i gotta, I got to find something of eternal value. I've got to find it in this and this and this and that. But instead, Moses says, number your days. Though your soul is eternal, your body's So what are you going to do before it goes? <sighs> Most of us have gone on road trips. What's the common question from the back seat in road trips? When are we going to get there? Are we there yet? But notice... Those questions get fewer based on two things. The kids growing up and a greater understanding of where you're going. So Peter's saying, understand with a godly perspective, eternity. Christ is taking you there, so grow up. Don't doubt. Trust him. He will take you there. Trust your father's timing. He was probably thinking that Jesus himself said, no one knows the day or the hour. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son. Jesus, in a way, was saying, am I coming back yet? Only the father. Trust your father's timing. So the Lord does not keep time like us. That's his first reason to trust the Lord in his timing. He does not keep time like us. Second of all, the Lord is patient toward us. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter's saying, listen, the Lord is not slow, but he's patient. And this promise that you're really wanting to see happen, fulfilled, this is a promise, yes, for the good of all those who are Christians, and it's also a promise of judgment. When Christ returns, as Revelation 1 says, the nations will wail on account of him. This is not a light day. It's not just a iffy day. It's a heavy day. It's a day that go all the way back to the middle of Isaiah. The assurance is that that day is coming. It's a heavy day. It is called repeatedly through the scriptures, the day of the Lord. So the Lord is patient toward us and he's patient on purpose. He does not wish that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. That's taking what Peter says here and putting it away for us to understand a little bit more fully. 
He does not wish that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. Who's he talking to? Who is the you? Well, he's talking, first of all, to his beloved, those who are receiving his letter here. See, some have strayed. And even sitting in that house, listening to this letter be read, they might be thinking, I don't really think he's coming back. Peter's saying, don't stick in that lane of thought. He is returning. But he has not yet returned because he wants you to repent. Don't keep following the false teacher. Do what repentance actually directionally tells us to do. Turn 180 degrees and go the other way. If you're following the false teacher, you are not in the way of Christ. Because those false teachers in this context here are saying, where's the promise of his coming? So he's saying, repent. Turn from the disbelief in his promised return. Because the implied statement there is, I don't think he's coming back. That means everything that's ever ha- that ever has been is going to continue the way that it always has been. Nothing less, nothing more. I'm here for this amount of time. Sure, I'll die. Everybody dies. But there won't be any return from Christ. Implicit in that belief is that there won't be any judgment. That there won't be any accounting for what is actually done in our bodies before we go. So he's saying, the Lord is patient, not wishing that any of you should perish, beloved. He's also saying, if you move over to verse 15, he says this later, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Sometimes, church, we got to sit in salvation a little bit because we talk about being saved, but we don't actually think through what are we being saved from. We are being saved from the just wrath of God. We are sinners who deserve his punishment, and it is coming. Peter is saying here, listen, he has not yet come because he wants to give you more days to repent and again find salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why he's patient. Listen, whether you would call yourself a Christian here this morning or not a Christian, Your decisions, our decisions matter. Christian, do you understand that there will be a day, and it is called the day of the Lord, when you will come before the judgment seat as well, and your deeds will be exposed as well? Praise be to God, the blood of Jesus covers all of that sin. But wouldn't you much rather have less of a record when you get there because your love for Christ has so enveloped your life that you're not living in secret sin even as a Christian presuming upon his blood but instead you're saying his blood is for me now my life is for him if you remember in the first chapter 
Peter wants them to make their calling and their election sure. It is God who foreknew them before the foundation of the earth, and he called them. If you go to Revelation 13 later on this week, look at the Lamb's Book of Life, where the names that are written there were written there before the foundation of the world. Election is real, and so is hope. Election, hope, that it is God who saves, and God saves. So Peter's saying, I understand the uncertainty. I understand that things don't always seem super comfortable. You might have to make hard decisions. You might have to turn away from sinful habits or sinful relationships, things that, that are not of God because you're trying to grab onto the eternal. And he's saying, I'm the only one who's eternal. Can I take your hand? Hold on to me. He told them, Make your calling and your election sure by putting on, acquiring, adding on these new qualities that will give you certainty that you are in Christ because only the Holy Spirit could bring about that growth, that addition of qualities. So you can say beyond a shadow of doubt, I do belong to Christ. I know that on that day, as he says in chapter 1, there will be richly provided for me an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. People, that's the goal. If that's not your goal, then Peter calls out, and he calls out to all of us because we know that's not continually our goal. Repent. His kindness leads us to repentance. Repent. Turn. If the Lord is pointing out something to you this, today, you, us, he's saying, turn from that. Then don't presume upon his patience. Turn from it. He was patient from the days of Noah, according to 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. Patient in the days of Noah. Noah was preaching, 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 there's a flood coming. And as Jesus says in Matthew 24, people are like, ah, we just want to keep eating and drinking, marrying and getting married. Nothing wrong in that. They were just following into this pattern of since creation, it's always been this way, and it's always going to continue this way. Jesus is saying, don't get tricked. Peter in 1 Peter was saying, don't be tricked. Noah preached repentance. Come get on the ark. Who got on the ark? Noah, his wife, three sons, and three daughters-in-law. Eight people. Preaching repentance does not bring, typically, the masses into the ark. But it is the way to enter the ark. Let me just read one more thing from 1 Peter because... If you're not a Christian this morning, you need to hear this gospel word. 1 Peter 3, 24 and 25. Sorry, I wrote it down wrong. Chapter 2, 24 and 25. Jesus Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Peter knows, Peter knew what it was like to stray. He turned his back on Christ. When Christ looked at him, do you know what Peter did? He wept. Repentance went from here to here through his emotional outpouring as he saw Christ and realized he had betrayed him. He had denied him. But Peter says this, listen, even that sin, Jesus bore in his body on the tree. So even if you're straying, he says, I'm a good shepherd, come back to me. You don't have to make things happen to walk in full repentance. You don't have to somehow say, well, Peter wept, did I weep enough? Mm. Just turn and trust Jesus. That his body bore the punishment for your sin. Your greatest betrayal fell on his shoulders. And he breathed his last so that you would never have to. That's eternal life. This body may get... But this true eternal reality never dies and joins Christ. So, let me just say this. There is hope this morning. I have one more point, so don't get comfortable. There is hope for you this morning. Christ has not returned yet, but he will. His patience does not last forever. So repent and be saved. Christian, if you're walking in darkness, turn out of the darkness, walk in the light. That's where Jesus is, the kind and good shepherd. There's a story about a man named Staffordshire Bill from Martin Lloyd-Jones' biography. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a preacher in the early 1900s, early to mid-1900s in Wales. He was working in, he was preaching at a church in a blue-collar town called Sandsfield. So, in Sandsfield, there was a man named William Thomas, or Staffordshire Bill, as he was commonly known. He was drinking in the workmen's club one day in Aberavon on one Sunday afternoon. As usual, he was by himself, for even men who had few moral standards had long since learned to avoid his filthy language and general unpleasantness. Everybody avoided Staffordshire Bill. In the words of Mrs. Lloyd-Jones, there he was, drinking himself into his usual sodden condition, and as he afterwards confessed, feeling low, hopeless, and depressed, trusting to the drink to drown those inward pangs and fears which sometimes disturbed him. There were several men in little groups of twos and threes in the club room, drinking and talking, and suddenly he found himself listening, at first involuntarily, but then anxiously, to a conversation between two men at the table next to him. He caught the words, the foreword, and then something about the preacher, and then a complete sentence that was to change the whole of his life. Yes, said the one man to the other, I was there last night, and that preacher said nobody was hopeless. He said there was hope for everybody. 
Of the rest of the conversation, Bill heard nothing. But arrested and now completely sobered, he said to himself, if there's hope for everybody, there's hope for me. I'll go to that chapel myself and see what that man says. But Staffordshire Bill's intention was not easily fulfilled. That first Sunday, he walked to the open gate of the railings that fenced the church, stood for some minutes, then his nerve failing him, he turned and went home. Although throughout the wretched week that followed, he waited for the next Sunday evening to arrive, somehow he reached the chapel only to hear singing, faced with the realization that he was late, with his heart in his boots and full of some nameless fear, he once more turned away and went home. Now, though his misery was increased, he had no thought of attempting to drown his terrors of conviction in drink. The Spirit of God had already begun a work in his heart which would prevent him from going back to his old ways. The third Sunday evening, he was again at the gate. The Lord is patient. The Staffordshire Bill was wondering nervously what he should do next. Then one of the congregation welcomed him with the words, Are you coming in, Bill? Come and sit with me. That same night, Staffordshire Bill passed from condemnation to life. He found, as Mrs. Lloyd-Jones tells us, that he could understand the things that were being said. He believed the gospel, and his heart was flooded with a great peace. Old things had passed away. All things had become new. The transformation in his face was remarkable. It had the radiance of a saint. As he walked out that night, someone said, Mrs. Jones, this is Staffordshire Bill. I shall never forget the agonized look on his face, for he flinched as though he had been struck a sudden blow. Oh no, oh no, he said. That's a bad old name for a bad old man. I am William Thomas now. The Lord does not keep time like us. The Lord is patient. And the Lord's return will surprise us. Last verse. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Christ will come back and it will be sudden. The day or the hour was never meant to be known. Jesus himself had said this. Why would we suppose anything different? Yet it is certain, certain that we would continue to wait on the Lord and he renew our strength in the waiting. So don't be surprised discouraged or distrusted distrusting in your waiting instead as jesus said stay awake keep your eyes looking keep your eyes and your heart wanting that if he returns soon which he very well could he would find you wanting him you might ask this question What should we do as we wait? Peter answers that question next week. So we will too, unless he comes back before then. Staffordshire Bill did not survive on this earth long enough to see Jesus' return. But 
he did see Jesus. He had just three years at the church at Sandfields before people spoke of how the old man whom the church family had nursed as a spiritual babe departed this life. When Dr. Lloyd-Jones arrived at his bedside, it was clear from the high fever and the steroidious breathing that the end was not far off. William Thomas was dying from double pneumonia. As Mrs. Lloyd-Jones heard the scene described later that day by her husband, from the moment of their arrival in the room, William Thomas was far away somewhere, but responded to a greeting and a prayer. He was obviously at perfect peace, and all the evidences of the old, sinful, violent life were smoothed out of a now childlike face. The minutes passed and became an hour and more. Then suddenly the painful sound of the difficult breathing seemed to stop. The old man's face was transformed, a light, radiant. He sat up eagerly with upstretched arms and a beautiful smile on his face, as though welcoming his best of friends. And with that, he was gone, to that land of pure delight where saints immortal Lord, whether we wait for that day and see that day with our own eyes or one day we close our eyes with outstretched arms as to a long-lost friend who has always been with us but we finally get to see face to face. Oh, Jesus, give us longing. Give us desire for you. Give us the grace to wait for your glory and praise.